Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Plato's Dialogue, Phaedo, Part 9 I shall have to go back to those familiar words which are in the mouth of everyone, and first of all assume that there is an absolute beauty and goodness and greatness and the like. Grant me this, and I hope to be able to show you the nature of the cause and to prove the immortality of the soul. C.B. said, You may proceed at once with the proof, for I grant you this. Well, he said, then I should like to know whether you agree with me in the next step, for I cannot help thinking, if there be anything beautiful other than absolute beauty, should there be such, that it can be beautiful only in as far as it partakes of absolute beauty, and I should say the same of everything. Do you agree in this notion of the cause? Yes, he said, I agree. He proceeded, I know nothing and can understand nothing of any other of those wise causes which are alleged. And if a person says to me that the bloom of color, or form, or any such thing is a source of beauty, I leave all that, which is only confusing to me, and simply and singly, and perhaps foolishly, hold, and am assured in my own mind that nothing makes a thing beautiful but the presence and participation of beauty in whatever way or manner obtained. For as to the manner, I am uncertain. But I stoutly contend that by beauty, all beautiful things become beautiful. This appears to me to be the safest answer which I can give, either to myself or to another, and to this I cling, in the persuasion that this principle will never be overthrown, and that to myself or to any one who asks the question, I may safely reply that by beauty, beautiful things become beautiful. Do you not agree with me? I do. And that by greatness only, great things become great, and greater, greater, and by smallness, the less become less? True. Then, if a person were to remark that A is taller by a head than B, and B less by a head than A, you would refuse to admit his statement, and would stoutly contend that what you mean is only that the greater is greater by, and by reason of, greatness, and the less is less only by, and by reason of, smallness. And thus you would avoid the danger of saying that the greater is greater and the less less by the measure of the head, which is the same in both, and would also avoid the monstrous absurdity of supposing that the greater man is greater by reason of the head, which is small. You would be afraid to draw such an inference, would you not? Indeed I should, said Cebes, laughing. In like manner, you would be afraid to say that ten exceeded eight by, and by reason of, two, but would say by, and by reason of, number. Or you would say that two cubits exceed one cubit, not by a half, but by magnitude, for there is the same liability to error in all these cases. Very true, he said. Again, would you not be cautious of affirming that the addition of one to one, or the division of one, is the cause of two? And you would loudly asseverate that you know of no way in which anything comes into existence except by participation in its own proper essence, and consequently, as far as you know, the only cause of two is the participation in duality. 
This is the way to make two, and the participation in one is the way to make one. You would say, I will let alone puzzles of division and addition. Wiser heads than mine may answer them. Inexperienced as I am, and ready to start, as the proverb says, at my own shadow, I cannot afford to give up the sure ground of a principle. And if anyone assails you there, you would not mind him, or answer him, until you had seen whether the consequences which follow agree with one another, or not. And when you are further required to give an explanation of this principle, you would go on to assume a higher principle, and a higher, until you found a resting place in the best of the higher. But you would not confuse the principle and the consequences in your reasoning, like the heuristics, at least if you wanted to discover real existence. Not that this confusion signifies to them, who never care or think about the matter at all, for they have the wit to be well pleased with themselves, however great may be the turmoil of their ideas. But you, if you are a philosopher, will certainly do as I say. What you say is most true, said Simeus and Cebes, both speaking at once. Eschecrates. Yes, Phaedo, and I do not wonder at their assenting. Anyone who has the least sense will acknowledge the wonderful clearness of Socrates' reasoning. Phaedo. Certainly, Eschecrates, and such was the feeling of the whole company at the time. Eschecrates. Yes, and equally of ourselves, who were not of the company, and are now listening to your recital. But what followed? Phaedo. After all this had been admitted, and they had that ideas exist, and that other things participate in them and derive their names from them, Socrates, if I remember rightly, said, This is your way of speaking. And yet, when you say that Simeus is greater than Socrates and less than Phaedo, do you not predicate of Simeus both greatness and smallness? Yes, I do. But still you allow that Simeus does not really exceed Socrates, as the words may seem to imply, because he is Simeus but by reason of the size which he has, just as Simeus does not exceed Socrates because he is Simeus, any more than because Socrates is Socrates, but because he has smallness when compared with the greatness of Simeus. True. And if Phaedo exceeds him in size, this is not because Phaedo is Phaedo, but because Phaedo has greatness relatively to Simeus, who is comparatively smaller? That is true. And therefore Simeus is said to be great, and is also said to be small, because he is in a mean between them, exceeding the smallness of the one by his greatness, and allowing the greatness of the other to exceed his smallness. He added, laughing, I am speaking like a book, but I believe that what I am saying is true. Simeus assented. I speak as I do because I want you to agree with me in thinking, not only that absolute greatness will never be great and also small, but that greatness in us, or in the concrete, will never admit the small, or admit of being exceeded. Instead of this, one of two things will happen. Either the greater will fly or retire before the opposite, which is the less, or at the approach of the less has already ceased to exist, but will not, if allowing or admitting of smallness, be changed by that. Even as I, having received and admitted smallness when compared with Simeus, remain just as I was, and am the same small person. And as the idea of greatness cannot condescend ever to be or become small, in like manner the smallness in us cannot be or become great. Nor can any other opposite which remains the same ever be or become its own opposite, 
but either passes away or perishes in the change. That, replied Cebes, is quite my notion. Hereupon one of the company, though I do not exactly remember which of them, said, In heaven's name, is not this the direct contrary of what was admitted before? That out of the greater came the less, and out of the less the greater, and that opposites were simply generated from opposites? But now this principle seems to be utterly denied. Socrates inclined his head to the speaker and listened. I like your courage, he said, in reminding us of this, but you do not observe that there is a difference in the two cases. For then we were speaking of opposites in the concrete, and now of the essential opposite, which, as is affirmed, neither in us nor in nature can ever be at variance with itself. Then, my friend, we were speaking of things in which opposites are inherent, and which are called after them. But now about the opposites which are inherent in them, and which give their name to them. And these essential opposites will never, as we maintain, admit of generation into or out of one another. At the same time, turning to Cebes, he said, Are you at all disconcerted, Cebes, at our friend's objection? No, I do not feel so, said Cebes. And yet I cannot deny that I am often disturbed by objections. Then we are agreed after all, said Socrates, that the opposite will never in any case be opposed to itself? To that we are quite agreed, he replied. Yet once more let me ask you to consider the question from another point of view, and see whether you agree with me. There is a thing which you term heat, and another thing which you term cold. Certainly. But are they the same as fire and snow? Most assuredly not. Heat is a different thing from fire, and cold is not the same with snow. Yes, and yet you will surely admit that when snow, as was said before, is under the influence of heat, they will not remain snow and heat, but at the advance of the heat the snow will either retire or perish? Very true, he replied. And the fire, too, at the advance of the cold will either retire or perish. And when the fire is under the influence of the cold, they will not remain as before, fire and cold. That is true, he said. And in some cases, the name of the idea is not only attached to the idea in an eternal connection, but anything else which, not being the idea, exists only in the form of the idea, may also lay claim to it. I will try to make this clearer by an example. The odd number is always called by the name of odd? Very true. But is this the only thing which is called odd? Are there not other things which have their own name and yet are called odd? Because, although not the same as oddness, they are never without oddness? That is what I mean to ask, whether numbers such as the number three are not of the class of odd. And there are many other examples. Would you not say, for example, that three may be called by its proper name, and also be called odd, which is not the same with three? And this may be said not only of three, but also of five, and of every alternate number. Each of them, without being oddness, is odd, and in the same way, two and four, and the other series of alternate numbers, has every number even, without being evenness. Do you agree? Of course. Then now mark the point at which I am aiming. Not only do essential opposites exclude one another, but also concrete things, 
which, although not in themselves opposed, contain opposites. These, I say, likewise reject the idea which is opposed to that which is contained in them, and when it approaches them they either perish or withdraw. For example, will not the number three endure annihilation or anything sooner than be converted into an even number while remaining three? Very true, said Cebes. And yet, he said, the number two is certainly not opposed to the number three. It is not. Then not only do opposite ideas repel the advance of one another, but also there are other natures which repel the approach of opposites. Very true, he said. Suppose he said that we endeavor, if possible, to determine what these are. By all means. Are they not, Cebes, such as compel the things of which they have possession, not only to take their own form, but also the form of some opposite? What do you mean? I mean, as I was just now saying, and as I am sure that you know, that those things which are possessed by the number three must not only be three in number, but must also be odd. Quite true. And on this oddness, of which the number three has the impress, the opposite idea will never intrude? No. And this impress was given by the odd principle? Yes. And to the odd is opposed the even? True. Then the idea of the even number will never arrive at three. No. Then three has no part in the even. None. Then the triad of number three is uneven? Very true. To return then to my distinction of natures which are not opposed, and yet do not admit opposites, as in the instance given, three, although not opposed to the even, does not any the more admit of the even, but always brings the opposite into play on the other side. Or, as two does not receive the odd, or fire the cold. From these examples, and there are many more of them, Perhaps you may be able to arrive at the general conclusion that not only opposites will not receive opposites, but also that nothing which brings the opposite will admit the opposite of that which it brings, in that to which it is brought. And here, let me recapitulate, for there is no harm in repetition. The number five will not admit the nature of the even, any more than ten, which is double of five, would admit the nature of the odd. The double has another opposite, and is not strictly opposed to the odd, but nevertheless rejects the odd altogether. Nor again will parts in the ratio three to two, nor any fraction in which there is a half, nor again in which there is a third, admit the notion of the whole, although they are not opposed to the whole. You will agree? Yes, he said. I entirely agree and go along with you in that. And now, he said, let us begin again, and do not you answer my question in the words in which I ask it. Let me have not the old safe answer of which I spoke at first, but another equally safe, of which the truth will be inferred by you from what has just been said. I mean that if anyone asks you what that is, of which the inherence makes the body hot. You will reply, not heat, this is what I call the safe and stupid answer, but fire, a far superior answer, which we are now in a condition to give. Or, if anyone asks you why a body is diseased, 
you will not say from disease, but from fever. And instead of saying that oddness is the cause of odd numbers, you will say that the monad is the cause of them, and so of things in general, as I dare say you will understand sufficiently without my adducing any further examples. Yes, he said, I quite understand you. Tell me then, what is that of which the inherents will render the body alive? The soul, he replied. And is this always the case? Yes, he said, of course. Then whatever the soul possesses, to that she comes bearing life? Yes, certainly. And is there any opposite to life? There is, he said. And what is that? Death? Then the soul, as has been acknowledged, will never receive the opposite of what she brings. Impossible, replied Cebes. And now, he said, what did we just now call that principle which repels the even, the odd, and that principle which repels the musical, or the just? The unmusical, he said, and the unjust. And what do we call the principle which does not admit of death? The immortal, he said. And does the soul admit of death? No. Then the soul is immortal? Yes, he said. And may we say that this has been proven? Yes, abundantly proven, Socrates, he replied. Supposing that the odd were imperishable, must not three be imperishable? Of course. And if that which is cold were imperishable, when the warm principle came attacking the snow, must not the snow have retired whole and unmelted? For it could never have perished, nor could it have remained and admitted the heat. True, he said. Again, if the uncooling or warm principle were imperishable, the fire, when assailed by cold, would not have perished, or would have been extinguished, but would have gone away unaffected? Certainly, he said. And the same may be said of the immortal. If the immortal is also imperishable, the soul, when attacked by death, cannot perish. For the preceding argument shows that the soul will not admit of death or ever be dead, any more than three, or the odd number, will admit of the even, or fire, or the heat in the fire, of the cold. Yet a person may say, But although the odd will not become even at the approach of the even, why may not the odd perish, and the even take the place of the odd? Now to him who makes this objection, we cannot answer that the odd principle is imperishable, for this has not been acknowledged. But if this had been acknowledged, there would have been no difficulty in contending that at the approach of the even, the odd principle and the number three took their departure, and the same argument would have held good of fire and heat and any other thing. Very true. And the same may be said of the immortal. If the immortal is also imperishable, then the soul will be imperishable as well as immortal. But if not, some other proof of her imperishableness will have to be given. No other proof is needed, he said, for if the immortal, being eternal, is liable to perish, then nothing is imperishable. Yes, replied Socrates, and yet all men will agree that God, and the essential form of life, and the immortal in general, will never perish. Yes, all men, he said, that is true. And, what is more, gods, if I am not mistaken, as well as men. Seeing then that the immortal is indestructible, must not the soul, 
if she is immortal, be also imperishable? Most certainly. Then when death attacks a man, the mortal portion of him may be supposed to die, but the immortal retires at the approach of death and is preserved, safe and sound? True. Then, Cebes, beyond question, the soul is immortal and imperishable, and our souls will truly exist in another world. I am convinced, Socrates, said Cebes, and have nothing more to object. But if my friend Simeus or anyone else has any further objection to make, he had better speak out and not keep silence, since I do not know to what other season he can defer the discussion, if there is anything which he wants to say or to have said. But I have nothing more to say, replied Simeus, nor can I see any reason for doubt after what has been said. But I still feel, and cannot help feeling uncertain in my own mind, when I think of the greatness of the subject and the feebleness of man. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>